Gareth Jones on speed. News Spy. The 20th Shanghai International Automotive Industry Exhibition opens today in Shanghai, with a wide range of cars being displayed by Chinese manufacturers. New cars at the show include the new Geely Saloon called the State Control, a new sports car from BYD called the Censorship, and the undoubted star of the show, the Neo Human Rights Issue. Yep, the clue, as they say, is in the name. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, she's Sarah. Hello. He's Zog. Hello. And I hope your respective voices, you two, are in better health than mine at the moment. I've got a bit of a chest and trachea infection thing going on, so it's a bit painful. So if I sound a bit subdued, I apologise. Okay, no Noddy Holder impressions today then. No Noddy Holder, no screaming Gareth Jones on speed today. Actually, I thought this whole reason my voice was a little tender was down to a rather excessive weekend I had where I got on the train on Friday from London to North Wales, went to a launch party of a pub that my two friends were opening up there, started drinking at six o'clock in the evening, I'm afraid to say, got on a tour bus at midnight and then (laughs) made the mistake of carrying on for about another two or three hours and then woke up with a terrible headache and a sore throat and bad chest on Saturday morning and it hasn't gone away since. So I think it's an infection rather than over imbibing. Well, you could tell yourself that, Gareth, but I think we're, we're all learning that, you know, actually, as, as time goes by, our recovery from enjoying ourselves a bit too much is longer and more painful than it used to be by a, a fair notch. Yeah, long and painful. Correct. But I hope you recover from your terrible infection, which is definitely an infection and nothing else. I'm hoping it's, well, I don't know what I'm hoping it is, but I'm hoping it passes soon. Yeah, Sarah, you got a cough as well. Oh, a slight cough, but I don't think I've got an infection like you do. <laughs> you've been smoking those big Havana cigars again, haven't you? And that massive hooker that you've got in the corner of your flat, you've been hanging off that, haven't you? <laughs> well, if I had a story like that to tell, I would let you know. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately not, no. Listen, before we get into talking about Formula One and stuff, let me tell you a couple of things. I was driving down the M6 on the way back from North Wales after my London, North Wales, Cardiff, North Wales, London trip over 48 hours. And we're going down the M6 and Smiley, who was driving me, noticed that suddenly there was no traffic on the northbound M6. None whatsoever. We thought, hey, hey, this doesn't bode well. There must have been some Mm. terrible incident on the motorway that's stopped traffic across three lanes. And I said, yeah, I would imagine that for all three lanes to be closed, a lorry must have jackknifed and is strewn across all three carriageways. And a couple of miles later... We got to the incident and I was absolutely right. A lorry had jackknifed and it was the most terrifying road crash. I didn't see the crash, but I saw the aftermath. The cab of the tractor unit had been separated from the tractor unit. The engine from the tractor unit was sitting in the middle of the road and clearly had been on fire. 
the box on the trailer had been separated from the trailer. The trailer was now upside down, so it must have jackknifed and tumbled. It was like the sort of thing that you'd see in a Hollywood movie, you know, like Terminator. It was horrific. Apparently, the driver had been extracted via the air ambulance, and he was okay in the end. I'm very, very glad Good, to report, because yeah, yeah. it was the most horrific thing I think I've ever seen. And I do feel sorry for the thousands and thousands of cars that were sat on the motorway for three hours. The police actually turned round cars on the motorway. I've never seen that before. They had them running the wrong way down the motorway to the exit. Yeah, get them off the motorway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm hoping that your experiences in driving have been a little safer and better than that recently. Have either you been on the motorways recently? Just a few weeks ago, but no, no horror smashes to report i'm glad to say all yeah safe normal and undramatic but yeah i'm glad to hear that the driver was okay they could oh, well it wasn't too badly hurt maybe but uh, yeah that sounds very bad sounds nasty while we're on the subject of dreadful things happening in vehicles i was really heartbroken to hear the tragic news that craig breen a wrc driver was killed in a pre-event test in Croatia. Mm. Yeah, I saw that in the news, actually. Yeah, they reported that. It's quite sad. Yeah, it's a vivid reminder, isn't it, that the safety that we take for granted in motorsport has been earned and we're still learning how to make what is a very dangerous sport because of the energy and the velocities involved, that we're still learning how to operate safely and we're not completely there yet. Yeah, and maybe you'll never quite get there because, as you say, in motor racing, there's necessarily quite a lot of energy involved in the vehicle that the driver is in, or the driver and the co-driver of the rally. There's a limit to how safe you can make racing. But we are getting better at pushing where that limit is, at least. It's fortunately it's a much rarer thing to come across fatality. But, yeah, racing is dangerous. We should never forget that. The record of the WRC hasn't been flawless over the last... Well, let's say 20 years, co-drivers died at Wales Rally GB in 2005 and at the Rally Catalunya in 2006. And let's not forget that Robert Kubica very nearly lost his life in a horrific WRC crash, which changed his career, took him out of Formula One for many years. I'm glad to say that he's managed to overcome a lot of the injuries that he suffered. I'm not a praying man, but let's hope that we don't see any more unpleasantness in motorsport because that's not why we follow it, is it? No. No, it's for different kinds of drama and excitement. Well, on which subject, will the new changes to the Formula One weekend formats, will they increase the drama and excitement that we get out of a Grand Prix weekend and will they improve our experience? Okay, well let's talk about what they are. We've got a couple of experiments coming up this year. You know what these are, Sarah? Are you talking about the change in format for the qualifying and the sprint race? Yeah, let's deal with the qualifying thing. Initially the plan is that they're going to test out limiting the type of tyres that each driver can use during each qualifying session. So in Q1, they're only allowed to use hard tyres. In Q2, they're only allowed to use the medium compound. And in the third round, they can only use soft tyres. 
And the reason behind this apparently is green. Sorry, the reason is what? Green. So this is a sustainability thing. Do you mean money or is this an eco <laughs> initiative? Which is it? Sarah, you got it. Sustainability. This is sustainability. Yeah, I can see that. Well, they have to be seen as to adhering to some sort of change because that's just the way of the future, isn't it? Okay, but I would argue that whatever they're going to do, and yeah, I agree absolutely unreservedly that the sport should be doing what it can to be more sustainable, to have a lower environmental impact but it should do things that are effective and make sense rather than things that make good headlines or just look good you know you want some actual effective changes rather than greenwashing now i just don't know which this is because my initial reaction to the proposals were it's a little bit sort of confusing and complicated and sort of deep level and not the kind of thing that is going to make a big difference to a weekend even among people that would call themselves f1 fans really care which compounds are being used in which session. You've got to be a pretty hardcore F1 geek to really be following what tyres are being used in different qualifying sessions and, and really caring about it. Do you know what I mean? It's This is fairly sort of deep level stuff rather than having, you know, another qualifying session or changing the qualifying format. You know what I mean? My initial sort of take was, mm, I don't know what difference this will make. I'm not sure they care all that much because I don't think it's going to make much difference to how the qualifying sessions are going to feel. But let's just see what happens. But if it's supposed to be a green initiative, well, OK, we know that Formula One gets through a lot of tyres, but what is the environmental impact of the tyres that they're using? Are they not being recycled effectively enough at the end of their life? Is this really much of an environmental big deal? I don't know. I mean, yeah. Maybe somebody can tell us. Well, I guess the initiative is to reduce or limit the number of tyres that Pirelli have to bring to each race. And okay, fair enough. That's good. Okay. Reduce your usage in the first place is a fairly good environmental, sustainable edict, isn't it? But the upshot of it is, as I understand, is that the teams at the back of the grid will have more soft and medium compound tyres for use during the race, effectively, because they don't get through to the second and the third round. Because they won't use them in Q2 and Q3. Yeah, and yeah, so when okay, we get yeah, to the race, yeah. the teams further down the grid will have a grip advantage, and hopefully this green initiative will actually tighten up the grid. I'll give the slower cars a chance to make up pace with the faster cars if stickier tyres help. I mean, that sounds worthwhile. That sounds like it could... Yeah, add something to the weekend. It's providing a bit of a counterbalance to the dominance that the front-running teams tend to have. And so, yeah, that sounds good. I'm still sceptical about, about how green this actually is. If it is a green initiative, you know, if somebody, if one of our listeners really knows, rather than just sort of making a moderately smart or moderately uninformed guess, as I'm doing right now, how green is this initiative? Or is it just a little tweak around the edge, which I kind of suspect it is in terms of the overall impact of a Formula 1 weekend. How much difference does it make if Pirelli bring a few fewer tyres to the race that weekend? I tend to agree. I mean, how much difference would it make given just how much sort of damage probably Formula 1 would do in terms of the environment on any one weekend? Yeah, if they really want to reduce the environmental impact, you have every race at the same circuit every weekend and you only allow the teams one set of tyres per car. You know, that's the extreme, isn't it? But I guess they're exploring. And also you uh, do something about travel arrangements because the biggest environmental impact of a race weekend is fans travelling to the race. 
It's the travel, whether it's road or air travel. The miles that the fans are doing getting to and from the race is the biggest part of the carbon footprint of the weekend. Mm. As someone who genuinely believes, as I'm sure all three of us do here, that we do need to reduce our usage and improve our carbon footprint between us. I'm just wondering how long Formula One has got before people start taking legal action against it. Do you know what I mean by that? Where you have a kind of a duty of care for people. Well, Formula One, you could argue, has a duty of care to the planet. And, you know, in the name of entertainment and business and commerce, we're pushing it, right? That's an interesting question. We probably shouldn't get too far into that. But I would just note that I think just in the last couple of months, there was a case in the USA where some American teenagers, I can't remember which state, I believe that they are suing the state government, not the federal government, their state government for essentially failing to protect their future. The teenagers that are bringing the case allege they are being recklessly negligent in not doing anything to address climate change in particular. So these kind of cases are being brought by citizens against governments at the moment. Yeah, I guess you could sue a sport, a sporting body. I would have thought that while... F1 might look like a fairly big target in that sense. It's probably not because they're just doing what a huge amount of the rest of the sporting world does and the entertainment world does and the broader world does. I think you'd have a very hard time pinning on Formula One anything that you couldn't pin on the transport industry, on a lot of other sports, because again, I'd say a lot of the carbon impact is travel. So if you're going to sue Formula 1 for what they're doing. You've got to sue football, you've got to sue rugby, you've got to sue cricket. Yep. So, yeah, people could do it. I don't think it's going to matter in the tiniest bit. I think all of the changes that F1 is going to make in terms of you know, being more environmentally conscious, it's doing and it is going to do because there's general social pressure to do it, because people within the sports recognise that it's an important thing to do, and because they know there's more regulatory pressure and that kind of thing coming, so they can't do nothing. Those things are going to carry on driving change rather than anybody suing the sport i think sarah as the youngest member of the on-speed team by some significant margin you know you you are arguably more in hey, touch yeah, with I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I object i object to the word significant there i'm, I'm, I'm carry sure on. it's true do you hanging out with a greater number of young people than perhaps Zog and I and Alex do. What's the mood? Do people look at big events, big sporting events? And yeah, have you got sort of super green pals who say, oh, no, I'm not going to that because it's inefficient for the planet? No, I don't think so at all. Actually, I was talking to one of my best friends yesterday because she was looking at buying an electric car. And it's not all sort of bells and whistles, I don't think, because... In terms of being cost-effective, after 10 years, apparently they need to replace the battery in the electric car. The cost of electricity is a lot, but replacing the battery is almost expensive as a whole new car itself. So when you do your due diligence, I'm not sure. I mean, you can become a sceptic, or will it be that driving on the roads will become more expensive? But in terms of your actual question, (laughs) going to sporting events that are more sort of sustainability-focused... I think it's neither here nor there. I don't really know too many people that are passionate about it. But there are events that do naturally now cater for sustainable cups and plates and things like that. Use wooden, those little sort of paper plates and things like that, which is a lot better for the environment than, say, plastic. So I think that there is an awareness there. 
But I think everyone's just getting used to that now, so it's good. I don't think I answered your question, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> I think you did answer the question. And the follow-up to that is, Sarah, is F1 doing enough? I don't think so, actually. They do have hybrid engines, but in terms of being recognised to be more sustainable, I think they do adhere to having sustainable events in that they do have wooden knives and forks and the paper plates and anything that can be sustainable available to the public at events. So those changes, which are fairly across the board, but in terms of, I guess, the racing and the cars and reducing emissions, I'm not sure they are doing enough, but I do think they definitely have plans for the future. They've made powertrains that are more efficient than anything else we have that takes petrol in one end and puts spinning wheels out of the other. I think Formula 1 has done very, very well. It's done extraordinarily well to make powertrain that is as efficient as what we have. Well, that's true. It's a technological showcase, really, for what, you know, Formula 1 has supposed to have been for a long time. You know, it's a a showcase for technology. It's where manufacturers develop technologies that then gets used on road cars, much less so these days than 50 60 years ago. But still, you know, it's in the nature of a sport like Formula One that you can develop things more quickly and in a much more intensive way. You can do things you simply wouldn't do for road cars, of course. And so you do push development and you can demonstrate just how efficient a hybrid powertrain can be. They've done extraordinary things with that. So I think that's a really notable achievement. How many people really notice that beyond fans of the sport? I'm just not sure. Because I think to non fans, it does generally have you know the image of being yeah, a very wasteful petrol burning monster which it isn't mm-hmm. so you know i think they've gone a long way to address eco critics and maybe they don't get enough credit for it yeah the problem isn't with the cars and the energy you know how much difference will 20 cars running for seven eight hours over a weekend make to the the universe in the grand scheme of things but the idea that f1 can pilot new ideas which could be absorbed by other motorsport by road going cars that's kind of important isn't it it's got to be number one isn't it? it's got to be at the pinnacle but at the moment you know formula e can argue that its approach to motorsport is healthier and a good argument for that over formula one i think i may have said this before in the program but i don't know if i'm hoping i don't even know if i'm predicting but i think there is a possibility that in future Formula E and Formula One could merge into the same thing. Would that work for you, Sarah? Well, I think it's a possibility, but I'm not sure that will actually happen because Formula One's way too popular. But Formula E, they do pride themselves on being, you know, the world's first and only carbon neutral sport since its inception. Ironically, though, because those Formula E drivers, a lot of them don't have the budgets, say, for example, Lance Stroll brings with his, you know, deep pockets to the table. There are very good drivers in Formula E that don't necessarily offer that. I think that's why a lot of Formula One drivers do get seats because they can bring a bit of money behind them. But the Formula E drivers are actually naturally very gifted drivers. So I don't know, it could merge, but my gut feeling is that it won't because I think Formula One so strong on its own, I think that will remain the pinnacle of motorsport. Yeah, I think the only reason Formula One and Formula E could end up merging is if Formula One is forced into a situation where they simply cannot use internal combustion engine cars anymore and want to, if you like, purchase the green credentials of Formula E. That's kind of the thing, because, look, I mean, Formula One and Formula E are kind of very far apart in the... or They're quite a long way apart in the 
It's a hierarchy of motorsport. At the same time that Formula E is a feeder series and has a relationship to Formula 1, it's a junior cousin, obviously. That said, you could make a very strong case that Formula E is much more a showcase for future technology than Formula 1 is, simply because road cars are going electric and Formula E represents 21st century road car technology where Formula 1 represents essentially 20th century road car technology. So given that, there's no way that Formula 1 and Formula E are going to merge, come together you know, in the near future. But some way down the line, who knows what the future could bring, but Formula E is flying the flag for genuinely 21st century car technology in a way that maybe Formula 1 isn't, you could argue, so who knows. Well, let's hope for a positive future for the planet and both race series. As the cars line up on the grid for the 2053 Formula One E Merged World Championship, this is your virtual commentator, the AI Murray Walker. On pole in the McLaren Williams Ferrari is Carlos Sainz Jr. Jr., the grandson of Carlos Sainz Sr. Alongside him in the Google Musk car is veteran racer Nico Hulkenberg, still hoping for his first podium. The single eco-friendly light goes out and away they go. Just two cars in order to reduce the carbon footprint of the racing series. Also, in the interest of environmental niceness, the entire season has been condensed down to just one race, consisting of a straight and one corner. And it's a win for science. What a shame that there are no spectators in the stands to watch this pinnacle of motorsport. But hey, looking after the planet has priority over motortainment. Welcome to the future. Whilst I was driving down to London on the M60 the other day, a car passed me that I'd never seen before in the flesh. It was the Maserati MC20, which is a mid-engine, beautiful, and it was in Maserati blue as well, which was a nice thing. And Smiley, who I was driving with, the drummer of the alarm, said, oh, well, you know why that's there, don't you? I said, why? He said, well, we're in Cheshire. He's bound to be a footballer, isn't he? Maybe right, maybe right. Good guess. Yeah. And it also made me realise, oh, man, yeah, ooh, you don't see that many big engine supercars these days. Increasingly, electric cars are starting to take over. And another car that got my attention that I haven't seen on the road, have you seen this? The MG... Cyberster. Have you seen it? No. No. I, so I have not seen one of those on the road, no. Well, they're not on the road yet, but they'll be released soon. It's an MG sports car with scissor doors, you know, like a proper sports car. But this thing is all electric. And given MG's recent development trajectory, I was so impressed with that MG4 I had that, man alive, I am chomping at the bit to get my hands on one of these. You know, a car about the size of the Mazda MX-5, perhaps, but pure electric. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, give me the some of that. that. Yeah, they, they released pictures of it last week, didn't they? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The 
MG Cyberster, which is a terrible name. I think they should have called it the MGE. That would do it. Or ER or the MGRE, Roadster Electric or Electric Roadster. But I'm always full of suggestions for car names. But they'll never listen to me. But it got me thinking, you know, wow, have we got to a point where, I mean, we've had them in before. There was the original Tesla EV Roadster. That was amazing. But have we now got to a point where battery technology is getting lighter and lighter and lighter, where a really lightweight EV is plausible? Because there have been some massive changes in battery technology in the last couple of months, Zuck, you're more abreast of that than I am. The thing that I think you think of is the, there was just in the last couple of weeks, a company called Amprius released news of their new lithium-ion battery that, long story short, is a realisation, a commercial product that's finally come about as a result of research that you may have read about, I think, 10 or 15 years ago to do with rechargeable battery anodes and they have made a lithium-ion battery that has about twice the energy density of for example the cells that tesla and a lot of other companies are using in their electric vehicles it has about twice the energy density by using a special kind of silicon anode i believe rather than a carbon anode and this is a moderately big deal because obviously for any given electric car you can reduce the weight of the batteries by a half and still have the same range. You can have the same weight of batteries and get double the range. It's a good thing. The batteries can also be charged faster. So we're talking about 500 watt-hours per kilogram, where I think the Tesla batteries are in the 270 to 290-ish range. You can get an 80% charge, I think, in as little as six minutes. The energy density by volume is also, again, about double that of a lot of the currently installed cells. So, like I say, this is good, solid progress for the batteries that we're putting in our electric cars. More than solid progress, a 50% reduction in mass, weight, volume of the battery pack that you need for the equivalent mileage is massive, isn't it? It's almost to the point where if you don't have that technology on your car then your rivals who have it are going to outsell you because the advantages are massive, aren't they? Because it's compound. You reduce the mass and you get far more efficiency, better mileage. Yeah, there's hardly anything bad about reducing the weight of your battery for the same performance. We should say, though, that while these batteries are just coming into production now, they're significantly more expensive than your regular lithium-ion batteries, so they're not going to be appearing in your entry-level electric vehicles anytime soon. In fact, the first applications for these batteries, I think all of the early customers aren't even car makers. They're companies that are making electric VTOL aircraft or other electric aircraft where the advantage of uh, higher energy density is even greater than it is for a car. So yeah, so the early sales deliveries are all going to be to aviation rather than the car industry. But then, yeah, I guess it'll be high-end cars first and then it'll be, you know, lower down, mm. lower down the market. And um, we need that technology to be applied to high-end cars fairly quickly. I don't know if you read that there's a new BMW i7 pure electric BMW and the all-up weight of the car is just below three tonnes because... BMW want to offer a car that has a range of 500 miles. And so it's like an arms race that's got out of control, hasn't it? The battery weight thing. So 
BMW, Rolls Royce, like you say, high end. Ferrari, anyone who's trying to sell an EV with equivalent range to a petrol car, equivalent weight, they're going to have to either use this technology that Amprius have developed, in which case I'm going to buy shares in them if they're available immediately, or develop their own alternative. There are alternatives, some of them there are solid state batteries on the way in theory there are aluminium the way, air batteries yeah. there are i don't know organic batteries of some kind of well the chemistry of batteries means that there are a lot of constraints on what you can do power wise we are going to carry on getting better batteries but to get significantly close to the energy density that you get from liquid petrol is just absolutely impossible the way that the chemistry of batteries work means you just can't get enough chemical bonds that can be made and remade in a way that lets you put energy in and out. You can't do all that in a light, small enough space to beat petrol. I think what you're saying, Zog, is you kind of change the laws of, I was going to say physics, Uh, but chemistry, perhaps. Chemistry... (laughs) Thank you, Scotty. (laughs) You put it much more concisely than I ever could. Slightly just diverging. Tell me about the cost in recharging the battery when the battery runs out of charge, just for the usual road car. I mean, I did see that new electric Maserati. It looked amazing, you know, and that they are so powerful. And they do charge very quickly, but at what cost? Electricity is a fraction of the cost of the petrol you'd put in the car to do the same distance fraction of the cost massively 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 cheaper right if you charge at home the cost of a new battery pack is going to be many 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 times the cost of a new petrol tank for example yeah so it's a very very different kind of thing and to to kind of get back to what you touched on earlier Mm. sarah say with replacing battery packs i mean replacing battery packs may be very expensive but it's the kind of thing that a lot of EV owners aren't even ever going to do. They're going to own and sell their car yeah, before the... without replacing the battery pack, I think. But that's certainly a significant difference mm. with you know the internal combustion engine vehicle. You've got this massive service cost somewhere along the way if you're going to keep that car running. There have been concerns over the years about oh, what happens when your battery's 10 years old, and we're now gathering data about that. And I think 10-year-old Priuses are down to about 70% of their battery performance when they were new which isn't too bad i'm surprised it's that good yeah i'm I'm, yeah i'm I'm surprised it's that good and those batteries that are older batteries that are taken out of cars now they're not junked or recycled they are reused there are lots of companies who buy old car batteries and use those battery packs for storage for domestic use and they're perfectly good for domestic use. You know, you don't need that high efficiency because you're not going thousands of miles or hundreds of miles. You're just buffering the energy that you're saving from your renewable resource, whether it's wind or solar. So it's not quite the crisis that some people would have us believe, is it? I'm not aware that anyone's suggesting there is a crisis. What, what, what crisis are you alluding Wait, to? There, yeah, I what say crisis. crisis are you alluding to? The Daily Mail. Don't buy an electric car because in 10 years you won't be able to drive 100 yards down the road. You know, the, right, yeah. That. I mean, oh, yeah, honestly. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, they're wrong, you know. <laughs> the Daily Mail. They've got a different agenda to the rest of us, haven't they? Not always very fact-based. <laughs> Nicely put. There are certainly some concerns with some of the battery chemistry that's used at the moment in terms of the availability of some of those metals, some of those minerals in the future. But with a lot of those, I don't think there's anything that's 
kind of a critical bottleneck that doesn't have the prospect of being replaced by other chemistry, other materials in the future. If you want to be concerned about resource use, I think copper is maybe more of a concern because the amount of copper that we need as a planet to do all of the things that we're kind of collectively intending to do with electrifying and increasing the amount of electrification, replacing more internal combustion sources of power with electricity and all of the grid upgrades and so on that are needed. We need to mine a great deal of copper in the next 100 years or so. A great deal more copper than we have mined in the past. There aren't good substitutes for copper as a material for making electrical cables. Kind of things. It's very, very hard to replace, and we recycle all of the copper that we're using already. It's not as if we're going to change the picture if you suddenly recycle more copper, because we recycle all of the copper already. Copper's the one I'm worried about. There you go. Okay, given that, I think then the efforts made by SpaceX to make us a multi-planetary society are even more important than you may realise. I don't know if we're going to find copper on Mars. I know there are lots of resources on the moon, and that's why the Chinese are going to the moon to mine it. Basically, they're going to drill it out and send it all back to Earth, aren't they? So we can carry on here. And I know this episode of the show is going out on Thursday the 20th, which in theory means that SpaceX will have had a second attempt at launching the Starship and Booster combo. Now, yesterday in our time, Monday, I watched the first attempt and was very disappointed when it was scrubbed at T-minus 17 minutes or something like that. And I don't know, maybe it has happened. Maybe the rocket worked. Maybe a rocket blew up. I don't know. I wish I could tell you about it, but this is important stuff, isn't it? Jerry, you didn't watch that live, did you? The Starship launch or attempted launch, the first one. I think I could have, you know. I do remember watching it, though. This was yesterday. It was on Monday this week. Oh, my goodness. No, I didn't. No, definitely not on Monday. My mistake. No, but there was one that I did watch which is very interesting. Yeah, when they were just launching Starship on its own, I remember we covered it on the show a few years back now. But yeah, it was hopefully the big one will have happened successfully, even more hopefully, by the time this programme is in your ears. And I think we're going to have to mention that in the next show. But one last thing before we go, I'm sure you've both read about this. Formula One drivers being mugged for their watches. Do you know about this, Sarah? No, I didn't know this. Really, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. They get robbed all the time. I remember Jensen Button got robbed from his um, place in Monaco. They came and stole all his stuff. They'd be huge targets. But they're also people who will tend to be able to afford good security and not many of them are living in dodgy neighbourhoods without good physical protection. Yeah, but there does seem to have been a bit of a spike in drivers having their watches nicked. Yeah, there are three examples as far as I know. The first one was... Lando Norris, who was at a football match, he was at the Euro 2020, so no wonder, hooligans, football, going to nick your watch. The second one (laughs) was, um, sorry, I'm casting nasturtiums, as they say, as they don't say. The second one was Charles Leclerc, who in Viareggio had his Richard Miller watch stolen, and I believe chased the thieves. He gave chase, yeah. I saw the CCTV footage of him chasing them. He was he on foot or in a car, the chase, you know? He was in a Ferrari. Good lad. But he didn't catch them, though, or did he? I don't think so. Right. No, no, I don't think he did. And then recently, Robert Dornbos, he used to race in Formula One 15, 20 years ago, Dutch driver. He had his Rolex nicked from his wrist in Amsterdam. He was, it was just last month, oh. in March. So... 
given that, my advice to Formula One drivers is, unless you can afford to have 180 quid's worth of bling nicked off your arm, don't flipping wear it on your arm. I will say, I think if any F1 driver on the grid was willing to sell me what they're wearing on their wrist for 180 quid, I'd probably just give them the 180 quid without even checking what it was. Sorry, did I not say 180 grand? You said 180 quid. Sorry, I meant 180 (laughs) grand. That sounds more like one of those ridiculous Richard Neal watches goes for. I mean, really, what message are you sending out to people that I'm so impossibly rich that I can spend the price of a house on a watch? In two words, from my point of view, f*** off as they say in succession. <laughs> but that's just me in my modest ways. You know me, ever modest. Of course. And listen, how much do you pay for your watch, Sarah? What sort of watch have you got on your wrist? I actually don't wear a watch. I did have one, but I sort of just don't use one anymore. I just use my phone. You're from the future. How about you, Zog? 60 quid? Hmm. Cheap watch? What? Well, actually, no. Okay, so I'm actually wearing a watch that's worth... It's probably worth about two grand. I'm not entirely sure. Quick, Sarah, mug him. (laughs) This was my gateway watch into the world of slightly more expensive watches, having previously just rocked a cheap but excellent Seiko mechanical watch for years. Seiko are terrific watches, won't hear a word against them. This is actually the first expensive watch I bought. It's a Zin 756 UTC Dua Chronograph, which I paid a little over £1,000 for secondhand about 10 years ago. I wore it almost every day for quite a long time. Would often forget to take it off while working on the car and stuff like that. And it still doesn't have a scratch on it, despite being secondhand and having been knocked about by me because of the rather excellent steel treatment that Zinn give their watches. No, I'm very fond of this particular slightly expensive watch. I think it was worth every penny. And there we go. There we go. <laughs> okay. Expensive watches aren't necessarily a bad thing. I like that explainer song. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Hey, listen, I could give you a much longer explainer about the Zin 756 and why it's such a great bit of design. And I hope the muggers of South West London aren't listening to this programme at the moment. This is the other thing. It's low-key. It doesn't scream. There's no gold in it. There's no bling on it. It's just a solid, really good, really well-designed watch. Modesty is all. We're going to go. We're out of time. Say bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> bye, everyone. For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!